As the demand for telemedicine grows, so does the need for connectivity. 5G meets that need. Qualcomm remains focused on giving doctors and patients superior, security-rich 5G connectivity. Learn more at qualcomm.com slash inventionage. What's up, everyone? Welcome to No Filter. I'm your host, Anna Kasparian. Last week, you know what I did? I promised you guys that I would read and respond to some of the comments that you've left me in the iTunes rating section, and I'm gonna do just that today. Now, for all of you who have sent me really nice comments, I appreciate it. Just know that I've read what you've sent me, and I, I can't tell you how happy it makes me that you enjoyed the show. But for the sake of saving time, I'm going to respond to specific criticisms. That way, you know, everyone feels like they are being answered in regard to some of the decisions we've made with this show. But before we get to that, of course, we have other things prepared for you. And I wanna start off by addressing this rise in extremism that we're seeing on various platforms, including YouTube. White nationalist organizations in the United States have experienced a surge in activity and influence in recent years. While one can argue that this is partly due to the rise of Donald Trump, it's obviously not the full explanation. Trump may have emboldened people to be brazen in their bigoted rhetoric, but how have hateful ideologies become as prominent and widespread as they are on platforms like YouTube today? First, it's important to take a step back and realize just how crucial YouTube has become as a source of news for, you know, millennials, Gen Z, basically young people. A 2018 Pew Research study found that 73% of US adults visit YouTube, with the percentage rising to a whopping 94% for 18 to 24 year olds. Unfortunately, white nationalists are working around the clock to radicalize younger generations. And YouTube's algorithm has proven to be a golden opportunity for them. The Data and Society Research Group recently published a study that looks at the connections that make up right-leaning alternative influence networks. Part of the study maps out how YouTube influencers appear on each other's channels. If you're listening to the podcast or have trouble seeing this chart, uh, just understand that differently sized dots next to the influencers' names indicate the number of connections they have to other influencers in the network, while the lines connecting the dots illustrate those connections. You might notice familiar names like Steven Crowder, Ben Shapiro, and Dave Rubin, just to name a few. Ben Shapiro got really salty about this study, arguing that he's being mischaracterized because the chart links him to avowed white nationalist Richard Spencer. Now, to be fair to Shapiro, he's clearly not the same as Richard Spencer. But the purpose of this study is not to argue that Shapiro and Spencer have the same ideology. It just means that they share a lot of mutual media buddies. Also, the data and the facts don't care about Ben Shapiro's feelings. Now, to reiterate, the purpose of the study isn't meant to accuse Shapiro of having some sort of racial bias. Sure, he did weirdly throw a temper tantrum because black people happen to enjoy the movie Black Panther, and he does argue that rap music is for stupid people. Oh yeah, then there was the time when he argued that Arabs, quote, like to bomb crap and live in open sewage. But luckily for Shapiro, this study is not all about that. What this study does show is how YouTube's algorithm pushes Ben Shapiro's viewers toward 
extremist content. And here's how it works. Shapiro and Richard Spencer have both appeared on a YouTube channel called Roaming Millennial. When Shapiro did his interview, YouTube's recommendation algorithm put the interview in front of Shapiro's audience, which then helped them discover Roaming Millennial's channel. Now, that's smart cross-promotion. But YouTube's incentive is to recommend additional videos that you'd likely want to see so that you spend more time viewing content on its platform. Makes sense. So if its algorithm sees that you like Ben Shapiro and Roaming Millennial, YouTube will then recommend videos with similar tags and keywords. It's likely that a video featuring one of the two and Dave Rubin will pop up in your recommended videos. And you might get baited into watching Rubin conduct his bobblehead method of interviewing extremists. That's right, Dave, just keep nodding your head while your media friends say they're living in sin or that you're living in sin because you're gay. In some cases, YouTube will recommend a video with Roaming Millennial and Richard Spencer, the noted white nationalist. Hail Trump, hail our people, hail victory. <laughs> That specific channel features a two-part interview where Spencer uses terms like race realism and white ethnostate to rebrand old ideas that have long been discredited for their lack of scientific merit. If a Shapiro fan watches his interview with Roaming Millennial and watches a related video in a similar format where a blatant white supremacist goes undisputed, then that grants Richard Spencer the same legitimacy as Ben Shapiro. And quite honestly, that's not really fair to Shapiro. While these influencers, like Rubin, claim that letting people talk unchallenged is about protecting free speech, real journalists strive, not always successfully, to give the audience a full picture so they aren't misled by dangerous falsehoods that can perpetuate hate and division. That requires challenging guests when there is a significant evidence, when there is significant evidence disproving racial theories like Spencer's. Dana Boyd, the founder of Data and Society, recently spoke about the effectiveness of the tactics employed by Richard Spencer and the like. She said that media manipulators have developed a strategy with three parts that rely on how the current media ecosystem is structured. One, create a spectacle using social media to get news media coverage. Two, frame the spectacle through unique phrases that can drive new audiences and new frames into search engines. Three, become a digital martyr in order to radicalize others. In Spencer's case, his outlandish racist rhetoric, including uh, coded buzz phrases like race realism and white ethnostate, went viral through social media, creating press attention, which then creates interest in the phrases they use to rebrand ideas that society had long ago rejected. As Boyd pointed out, What's at stake is not whether these organizations are restricting discussions about free market economics or failing to allow conservative perspectives to be heard. But what is at stake is how fringe groups can pervert the logic of media to spread conspiratorial and hateful messages under their false flag of conservatism. When it comes to Dave Rubin, Boyd's study highlighted how his platform has served as a jumping off point for a number or a variety of fringe figures from Lauren Southern to Milo Yiannopoulos. Rubin has appeared in four videos with a guy named uh, Carl Benjamin, known on YouTube as Sargon of Akkad. Just to give you an idea of what kind of guy Benjamin is, he's responded to a British member of parliament who spoke out about receiving graphic rape threats by saying, 
And I quote, I wouldn't even rape you, hashtag feminism is cancer. Classy. Ruben has done videos with him four times because, you know, he just wants to discuss big ideas. So if you're a fan of Ruben's, you'll come across Benjamin's content. And if you believe that the right wing and by extension, all of these influencers are supposedly under attack by liberal social media executives, you might believe that the information they give out is actually legitimate. Benjamin's conversation with Richard Spencer, where he used pseudoscience to justify bigoted behavior and racism was the highest viewed live stream on YouTube the day the conversation happened, with 10,000 viewing live and more than a half a million viewing after the fact. Benjamin shared his platform and his audience with Richard Spencer, who was quite happy with the results. Because of the video's high viewership, Spencer subsequently dubbed the debate the Unite the Right of YouTube, likening its significance to the march that took place in Charlottesville, Virginia in August of 2017. Dave Rubin's response to the study was pretty hilarious, mostly because he freaked out about it before taking a time to actually understand it. After Vox's Ezra Klein tweeted about the study, Rubin responded with, Want to explain to me how gay, married, pro-choice, pro-pot, against death penalty for reforming prison drug sentencing is part of the reactionary right? Now, wait a minute, Dave. I thought you hated identity politics. Maybe you shouldn't cite the fact that you're gay at every opportunity if you honestly do feel that way. Conducting softball interviews with these extremists where you literally refuse to challenge anything they say helps to legitimize them and their agenda. It doesn't matter whether you share their beliefs, but Ruben isn't completely clueless. I know it seems that way. He's intentionally riding the coattails of some while also boosting the credibility of people who clearly think he's some second class citizen because he's gay. I mean, just take a look at how his friend, Ben Shapiro, responded when Ruben asked if he'd go to an anniversary party celebrating his gay marriage. If we were having an anniversary party, would you come? If I was inviting all the crew that we all know, and we were just an anniversary party, we're just having a party, and uh, and I'll even throw in some kosher food for you to make sure you don't have to bring your own food. You know, honestly, I'd have to think about it. I'd have to think about it in the same See, way. So that's interesting to me, because yeah, that's, that's a different thing. Well, it, not really, because again, it's if you're a religious person, yeah. and again, take it from the religious perspective. The, from the religious perspective, the question is, are you glorifying something that you think is sinful? Yeah. So if it's a party for something that you think was originally sinful, can you participate in that? So from a religious point of view, that's an actual serious moral question. Yeah. Would I go out to dinner with you? The answer is yes, right? Because that's not actually like, let's celebrate something that I feel that you're doing is sinful. Man. That was painful to watch. But for those who argue that Dave is just open to having a diversity of voices on his show, keep in mind that he won't speak to people who might challenge him from the left. Sam Cedar has expressed interest in having a discussion with Ruben, but he just won't do it. And guess what? I even offered to debate big ideas with him at Politicon. He said no, which is interesting coming from someone who loves to just let other people speak, even if he disagrees with them. How come that only seems to apply for right-wingers? Anyway, that's beside the point. As Dana Boyd perfectly outlined in her study, the objective isn't about having polite conversations about controversial topics. The stark reality is we got played and we're going to continue to get played until we start actually addressing what's at stake.
She also says that media manipulators bend the rules. They leverage irony to their advantage. They engage in rhetorical games so that it's very hard to pin them down because they know what they're doing. Boyd is right, they do know what they're doing. And it's time that we're all aware so we don't fall for the far right's rebranded nonsense that Americans worked so hard to move away from. For Rubin, this isn't about spreading ideas. It's about grifters piggybacking off a well-oiled media manipulation machine to cash in at the expense of a country that used to be way more united. The more we're aware of it, the less effective their manipulation will be. We'll be right back. You guys, this music is making me feel so hip. Welcome back to No Filter. Look, I wasn't going to do my favorite thing segment this week because so much of last week was a god awful mess. Monday started off with a rumor that the president was going to fire Rod Rosenstein, which could potentially lead to the end of the Mueller investigation. That rumor is still out there, by the way. We were all on pins and needles leading up to the testimonies of Brett Kavanaugh and Dr. Christine Blasey Ford. And even though we all read portions of what she eventually said before the Senate Judiciary Committee, nothing could have prepared us for the, you know, actual experience of hearing her allegations. As for Kavanaugh, what would you call it? Uh, fire and fury? Nope, that's taken. Tears of a clown? I wouldn't want to ruin that song by associating it with Kavanaugh, so I'm just not going to do it. But I have decided to go through with my favorite thing segment because it forces me to look on the bright side of stuff like this so I don't have a nervous breakdown. My favorite thing about Brett Kavanaugh's high school friends is their names, Tubin, PJ, and Squee. Squee? The Squeester? I don't want to make fun of people's names. It's not their fault, it's their idiot parents' fault. At an elite Catholic boys school where first names are handed down through generations, it's quite often their idiot parents' 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 fault. So it's not that Kavanaugh's friends' names are bad, it's that they're actually perfect given the context. Of course Kavanaugh has a friend named Squee, probably to avoid getting made fun of for being Corsquilius Edgerson, the fifth. I'm sure he and PJ hang out together after he lifts with Tobin to throw back a few skis. Because of course, Brett Kavanaugh called beers brewskis and sneakily writes it as skis on his little green calendar like it's this clever little code. Speaking of brewskis, see if you can tell what Brett's favorite thing to drink is. Yes, we drank beer, uh, my friends and I, the boys and girls. Yes, we drank beer, I liked beer. Still like beer, we drank beer. The drinking age, as I noted, was 18, so the seniors were legal. Senior year in high school, people were legal to drink. And we, yeah, we drank beer. And I said, sometimes, sometimes probably had too many beers, and sometimes other people had too many beers. What we drank beer, we liked beer. Did you drink some beer before your testimony? Because you're rambling on and on like you've had a few. He talked about beer so much, and yes, it was in response to questions about drinking habits, but he kept coming back to this one soundbite, which he'd obviously settled on as the perfect way to make the other side sound stupid, or at least he thinks. Buzzfeed put together a montage of every time this guy mentioned beer. I drank beer with my friends. We drank beer. Uh, my friends and I, sometimes I had too many beers. Yes, we drank beer, I liked beer, still like beer. We drank beer, in any event we drank beer and, and uh, 
Still do. I think you've probably had beer, Senator. I liked beer. I still like beer. The calendars show a few weekday gatherings at friends' houses after a workout or just to meet up and have some beers. You ever played quarters? You know what his nonstop I like beer catchphrase made me think of? The I like turtles kid. At the waterfront village with my friend, the zombie, Jonathan. You're looking good. Jonathan just got an awesome face paint job. What do you think? I like turtles. There you have it. If Republicans have their way, the drunk frat boy version of the I like turtles kid will become the newest Supreme Court justice. Goody. My favorite image to come out of the testimony is the one of Kavanaugh losing his temper as all the women behind him look on in horror. Some are seemingly disgusted, others are undeniably demoralized by all of this. Special thanks to Twitter user The Rogue Nerd for bringing that to our attention. This image is not what we typically associate with a judge. Seriously, just think about that for a second. A judge is someone we dress up in a big black robe. I mean, yes, Ginsburg put something fancy around her collar because she's a badass, but mostly it's just a big black robe. And there's a reason we do that. Judges aren't supposed to be people with whims and emotions. They're meant to be these floating brains that weigh facts and dispassionately issue judgments. Kavanaugh, on the other hand, dispassionate is not the word I'd use to describe him. When he wasn't angry, he was crying. When he wasn't crying, he was angry. I thought women were too emotional. With this weird, over-the-top indignance, the only judge he reminded me of was Sylvester Stallone as Judge Dredd. And what was the result of the computer check of the DNA coding on those bullets? The DNA is a perfect match for Judge Joseph Dredd. Stop! My favorite thing about Kavanaugh's arguments is that he is supposed to be this brilliant legal mind whose opinions will define the court for a generation. But everything he said was basically ludicrous. His own arguments include gems like, and I don't quote because these aren't exact quotes, but I'm paraphrasing. I couldn't have been at that party. Just look at this 1982 calendar that I wrote on in pencil. This is a top legal mind, mm, I vote no. My favorite thing about Republicans like Lindsey Graham is watching them contort themselves to simultaneously defend dear Brett Kavanaugh's good name while trying not to call Professor Blasey Ford a liar. I feel sorry for her and I do believe something happened to her and I don't know when and where, but I don't believe it was Brett Kavanaugh. What does that even mean? That means you don't believe her. If you don't believe her, just say you don't believe her. It's not that difficult. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I really wanted to spend some time addressing some of the comments and ratings I've been getting on iTunes. And as I've said before, I always appreciate your thoughts, even if they're critical. Here are some of the comments that stood out to me. Venom77XX writes, doesn't ever try to give the other side. Actually, believe it or not, I do try really hard to break out of my own bubble to understand the other side. If they're right about something, I do give them credit. For instance, in my coverage of Jordan Peterson, I did give him credit for inspiring young men to strive for more in their lives, even though I disagree with him on a lot of other political and social issues, including socially enforced monogamy. However, although I always take the other side into account, I refuse to spread or legitimize anyone's debunked or inaccurate nonsense. 
Kilera writes, it sounds like Anna is reading from a script for the entire episode, and to me, that completely defeats the purpose of a podcast. To me, a podcast should be spontaneous. Fair enough, uh, I do read from a script that's heavily researched and well-produced. Since this show shoots once a week and is only 22 minutes long, it gives me an opportunity to clearly and accurately present stories and provide analysis. I understand that scripted news isn't for everyone, but I do thank you for giving this a shot. Finally, trying to understand writes in and says, all I've heard is a lot of complaining about Republicans rather than actual arguments. If you're a Republican trying to find a Democratic podcast that isn't just complaining, this is not for you. Also, universal health care would add $3 trillion to the national debt in the next 10 years. How are you gonna pay for that? Okay, so uh, there isn't whining on this show. I wanna be clear about that. There's a lot of research that goes into uh, the segments that we produce, and there's evidence to go along with it. I always make sure to cite that evidence. But let's talk about universal healthcare for a second. This is actually a giant misconception, and most of the misunderstanding is due to the way a recent study by a libertarian organization was covered. Mercatus looked into the cost of Medicare for all over the next decade, and it did find that the federal government would spend more on healthcare. And guess what? It should, given how we willy-nilly spend on private military contractors and unnecessary wars. However, since Americans would be paying way less in healthcare, the overall cost would actually go down. Business Insider writes that according to the Mercatus model, total healthcare spending would actually come in at around $303 billion lower in 2031 than under current projections, with 7.3 3.5 trillion going to healthcare that year versus 7.65 trillion expected now. Total national healthcare spending would be $2 trillion lower from 2022 to 2031 under this plan. And that's again what the recent report found. I get that the numbers are confusing and complex, and I'll dig deeper into this issue on a later show. But my advice would be to avoid the corporate media spin on universal healthcare, because a universal healthcare system would actually save us money. Anyway, guys, thank you so much for watching No Filter. Special thanks to all the producers and crew that helped me make this episode possible. Jesus Godoy, Ja'Cory Palmer, Brendan Limer, Brett Kyle, Craig Lowry, Edwin Umania, Arthur Aguirre, Dan Evans, Brett Ehrlich, and Cassie Hanks. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next week with another episode of No Filter. <laughs> <laughs>